We have about <clears throat> 45 minutes to cover aging, sickness, and death. Um, all of what we've been talking about is really an expression of the Four Noble Truths, which, as <clears throat> many of you know, are often misunderstood, uh, leading people to conclude that the Buddha's teaching is pessimistic. Uh, because it focus, focuses so often on suffering. But in the dharmic way of looking at things, suffering is the gateway to liberation. So if you just stay with suffering and leave it at that, of course it's pessimistic. But it's, a, a from a conventional point of view, a radically different way of looking at and facing suffering. One which, <clears throat> if carried out, uh, takes you to freedom. And what was suggested is that uh, our practice has a lot to do with intimacy, uh, making direct contact with every aspect of life, allowing life to fully touch us. and that aging, sickness, and death are realms which are particularly close to us, everyone. And yet, perhaps we push them furthest away. Uh, we're kind of intimate strangers. I would say, in general, uh, the path of self-knowledge, if you really start to look into your mind, I think you may think that, find that that phrase is not so bad. Many people think that they already know themselves before starting some form of practice, some form of clear seeing, looking into the nature of, of mind, their mind. But I think any of us who've done this for a while, when you look in, you see that in one sense you've been living with your mind all your life. It's been with you 24 hours a day but you find out so many new things. You find out certainly so many new aspects and of old things that it's as if we are strangers. We're intimate strangers with ourselves. And practice is an attempt to let go of the, dissolve the stranger part and to fully meet ourselves. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, take a very simple teaching of the Buddha and use that this evening to help you get the essence of how to practice with aging, sickness, and death. It's so simple, not easy to do, but the idea is a very, very simple one. Actually, um, I don't know how many of you remember Satchel Page, who was a um, picture, uh, well, this is a couple hundred years ago or so. Uh, but when I was a teenager, I remember how exciting it was that he was finally admitted into the major leagues. He had been playing in what was called a Negro, Negro baseball. And uh, he was, by everyone's agreement, a great pitcher and also 
very, very uh, hilarious, a great showman, and also had that kind of earthy wisdom where he could say a lot with just simple, very unadorned language. And finally, I believe, if I remember, I was the Cleveland Indians, right? Yeah. And I don't know how old he really was, but he seemed to be pretty old to me. I was, I think, I think I was a teenager. And uh, by baseball standards, anyway, he was really old. And, I, and, and there was one interview with him where the interviewer asked him about, he was trying to get at, what's it like uh, to be an old baseball player or an, a person who's elderly. Finally, he was allowed into the major leagues. And he said, um, oh, uh, it's all about uh, mind and matter. And he said, if you don't mind, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and the Buddha said the exact same thing. Uh, uh, uh. Only it took him thousands of Dharma talks to do it. <laughs> Here's just a short one. This is a famous uh, exchange sometimes referred to as the, uh, it's about the contemplation of Vedana, feelings. We've been calling it feelings, sensations. Um, but it's this, tended, this um, taking experience as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. All day long, it's everything that comes in through the sense doors. And it's from the Samyutta Nikaya. Bhikkhus, and bhikkhus is uh, usually translated as monks, but it also means uh, any serious meditators, anyone who has really uh, set themselves to practice. It includes us, in other words. Bhikkhus, people who do not know may feel pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and some neither pleasant nor unpleasant sensations. Noble disciples, that's us, who already know may feel some pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and some neither pleasant nor unpleasant sensations. Because in this case, what is special or strange? What is the difference between the noble disciples who know and those who do not, between people who practice and those who don't? People, because the people who do not know, who are subject to the forces of unpleasant sensations are sorrowful, mournful, crying, and lamenting until they become deranged. <laughs> well, it's not always so far from the truth. They feel these two types of sensations, the physical and the mental. It is like the hunter who shoots a person with one arrow and shoots yet another arrow into the same person. When this is the case, that person feels sensations due to both arrows the physical as well as the mental. Those who do not know are just like this. They feel two types of sensations, the physical and the mental. Bhikkhus, for those noble disciples who already know, when they feel the pangs of unpleasant sensations, they are not sorrowful nor mournful. They do not wail, lament, nor beat their breasts crying, nor do they become deranged. They feel only physical sensations, not mental torment. They feel only physical sensations, not mental torment. Straight satchel page. <laughs> 
It is like the hunter who shoots a person with an arrow and shoots yet another arrow that misses. When this is the case, that person will feel the sensations of only one arrow. The noble disciples who already know are like this. They only feel physical pangs and remain unscathed by the mental ones. Let's take aging first. In the process of aging, uh, the body starts to lose some of its capacities. We all know that. Uh, it becomes less obedient. Maybe it wasn't all that obedient to begin with, but now it's really not obedient. And more and more, it doesn't do a lot of things that we want it to do, or it doesn't do them as well as we're used to having them been done. Uh, and little, little by little, we need supports for different capacities, for hearing, for seeing, and so forth. Uh, our energy level is depleted, you know. Uh, and when this happens, uh, we start to look and sound different, and people start to see us in a different way. Uh, one yogi at, at Cambridge, in, the, uh, in Cambridge we have interviews that are in the middle of retreats, in the midst of retreats, but also we have them where people come during the week before work and after work and talk about, can be their sitting, but it can also be about any aspect of their daily life. And last year someone came uh, who was clearly depressed and came into the interview and I asked, you know, what's the problem? He said, well, I just feel very, very sad. And I said, and depressed. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I woke up this morning and my knees were very stiff. Uh, one knee, my, my right knee was very stiff. Okay. Okay. But what happened was, she said, then when I felt the knee as stiff, one arrow, then my mind, I understood, oh my God, this is the first signs of real aging. This is it. I'm starting to become decrepit. Uh, soon I'll, uh, won't be able to do all kinds of things. I won't be attractive. Uh, I'll need help, I'll be out on the street, and Social Security is, it'll go bankrupt, and I, you know, and it went on and on, and she then got into loneliness, and, uh, and it all started with this stiff knee. Um, that was the second arrow, in other words, the first arrow is unavoidable. We do get more stiff as we get older, and other things happen to the body. That's what happens to the body. Uh, she took that. Uh, as an assault, not simply that she was aging, but of course, uh, that stiff knee became, that fact, physical fact, became appropriated by self. That is, the self is constantly building its sense of itself up out of the materials of life. Almost whatever happens, the ego uses and creates a sense of it being this or that. Good things happen, it feels bigger and stronger. Bad things, it feels weak. And so uh, the knee hurt, but the ego hurt even more than the knee. And what we call selfing, that is this tendency of mind to grasp hold of, let's say in this case, a physical fact, and then it has complete freedom, a poetic license to turn it into whatever it wants to turn it into. And in this case, a whole scenario came out with torment. Uh, how, what might we have done with something like that? Well, if awareness could be
be right there with the stiffness and understand it as stiffness. And perhaps the mind starts, but you, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between, well, this is body and this is mind. That's uh, quite a challenge, but it's asking us to make that discernment, to be able to tell the difference that this is body, this is mind. Let me give you a, an even more dramatic case. It happened to me. Uh, a few years ago, um, I was uh, coming back from my dentist, and I was waiting for the T, the public transportation. For those of you who are from the Boston area, um, Coolidge Corner, Brookline. That's where all the dentists are. Isn't it true? Anyway, I think everyone there is a dentist. No normal people live there. Uh, so fine, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was, you know, 45 minutes in the chair, it wasn't so great. Uh, I got on the tee, paid my fare, and it was all filled up, and I was holding on to this bar, uh, and suddenly a young woman looks, who's sitting right in front of me, looks up at me, gives me a smile, uh, gets up, and gives me her seat. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Before, before I go on, I have to add <laughs> that before this happened, uh, I had a sense of myself as being a relatively modest human being, uh, aging gracefully, <laughs> uh, no big deal, uh, you know, kind of unassuming and uh, just going along, willing to go with life as it went. Um, not having any particular self-image of myself as being whatever. Uh, but as we know, um, life, life ages the body. Life ages the body. And in doing so, as life ages the body, this challenges us. Uh, if you have a self-image, as life ages the body, that self-image gets challenged. Now, I didn't even know I had a self-image. Some self-images are rather subtle, to come back to our story. Um, so she got up and gave me, the, gave me her seat. And I assumed, of course, that means she's getting off at the next stop. And I sat there. You know, she smiled at me, and I smiled back at her. You know. <laughs> the next stop came, and she didn't get off. And the next stop, and she didn't get off. And I realized that she gave me that seat. Now, at a certain, at this point, the mind became feverish. <laughs> yeah. Um, years, years of organic vegetables and uh, yoga, green tea, uh, soy milk, uh, massage, acupuncture, acutherapy, colonic irrigations. <laughs> Fasting, down the tube. Yeah, yeah. Now I have to, I have to admit, I have to admit that even before, from time to time, someone would say to me, uh, "Oh, you look much younger than your age." And even though I was very humble and unassuming, uh, I could feel a certain chest get expanded. And you really think so? You know. <laughs> No. <laughs> so that did happen a few times. Uh, 
and when this happened, uh, there was really an alarm went off and uh, thoughts like it must be because of the sitting in the chair with the dentist that <laughs> she doesn't understand. I'm not a senior citizen. Uh, I'm the one who gets, I give my chair up. I've been doing that for a long time. That's my job. No one does that for me. And uh, it just got worse and worse. Uh, and so, as we all know, I sat with it. And it calmed down by about Park Street. <laughs> and I had a good laugh at my own expense. But look what happened there. Uh, a certain, I didn't even know I had a, a certain self-image. And it just got shattered, just broken to pieces. And I found out that there was a sense of being, a, of being such and such. And then life came along and showed me that that might have been true, but those days are over. You're someone else now, and this person, this sweet, generous, kind person, she wasn't doing it to humiliate you. She actually was trying to be kind. And uh, can you see how there were two arrows there? Okay, it's the same thing. So that what's so important is discernment that can uh, separate out and tell the difference between a bodily condition and a mental condition. Now, I thought I had, was well on my way to having done that, but apparently not. Um, so a lot of work with aging, uh, for me personally, and, I, and this is what I would suggest, is that there are these contemplations where you reflect on your own aging. But you know, even if you don't take up those contemplations, this is what I mean by life as a teacher. It comes along and gives you teaching all the time. The question is, are you receptive? Are you a student of life? Are you willing and able to learn from it? Now, uh, in order to do that, you have to have a willingness, an attitude, but also the very skills that we're developing here. Because if, if you don't have even an intellectual understanding between the mind and the body, between the natural course of a body, that is, bodies must age, but from a Dharma point of view, does the mind have to age? Now, in common sense terms, the whole thing is thrown in together and uh, it's made into a person. It's me. But what happened was clearly there was some selfing was going on, that the, the condition of the body were, the, were important materials. This is my body. This is who I am. Even though I'd read it in Buddhist books over and over and over that I'm not the body and it doesn't, it's not me, you can keep reading them a million times, a million more than a million times, so what? You have to really, it has to be ouch kind of learning. That kind. Um, and so, we don't have a lot of time, but you can, you, you can see what I'm getting at. That is, uh, perhaps you have your own uh, relationship to the aging process, that your body inevitably is in the process of aging right now, right at this moment. And I don't know how it's affecting you. Uh, but you have the tools to work with it. In order to do it, though, you have to take a direct, close look at what's going on. You have to really experience what's happening. And you have to see what the mind does with these materials. And you may not like what you see the mind do. Although once you get the knack of it, it's actually great fun. Uh, I don't see the choice. The other choice is denial, defensiveness, ostrich mind. Uh, that doesn't seem to go anywhere. Now, the, the body must age. It's not like that's negotiable. There's no choice there. But where there is a choice is we have an opportunity to work on the mind. 
just what does the, the mind do about what's happening to the body? And uh, it's in this case that the Buddha is uh, referring to those two arrows. And we have the ability, through the practice, to remove the second arrow or for it not to come at all, just to have one arrow. In other words, I'm not giving you a Hollywood ending romantic depiction of aging. Uh, some of aging is not very uh, glorious. Uh, the uh, incapacities, the uh, loss of certain uh, functions that we've enjoyed so much, and there may be some grieving that comes along with it, but we can uh, make that torment or we can go into it uh, intimately and closely and use it as, actually use it for our own liberation. Um, I'd like to talk about illness a bit. You'll see they're really all the same, including death. Uh, regarding illness, I'd like to back off a bit. And you might think that uh, has nothing to do with illness. I'd like to come right to our retreat, to an ordinary event that I'm absolutely certain that everyone in this room knows well. Is there anyone in this room who's had no bodily pain or discomfort during these days? If there is, please take over and finish the Dharma talk. <laughs> is there? We all have, when you sit, some part of the body starts to hurt, gets uncomfortable. Let's assume for the moment it's a knee, whatever. How do you practice with pain? We talk about this all the time. And uh, in beginning classes, it's one of the first things people have to learn. Of course, some of what, uh, of what we have to learn is why we do this in the first place. Why do we put ourselves through this? That is, normal people would keep changing their posture, shifting, uh, standing, sitting. We do it in a little bit here and a little bit there. But um, we're all trying to keep movement to a minimum. And uh, is this crazy? It's within a, a framework. In other words, there's a frame around this, a context within which this is happening that makes sense. Uh, as you know, we're not trying to hurt you. That is, you can move. We're not trying to do anything that would be medically damaging. But what we, what we are trying to do is to at least help us all gain a little bit more experience uh, in coming close to discomfort and pain, to not to always have to run from it. Uh, to not always be tyrannized by it, uh, to not uh, be uh, exhausted by running away from pain, running after comfort. So much of our life has been that. And so if we can even learn that a little bit, part of what we may learn, and perhaps you have learned it, some of you have been practicing a while, I'm pretty sure you have, it turns out that if you can learn to take the second arrow out, the physical pain often isn't all that bad. It's the unexamined second arrow that turns pain into torment. So let's, let's just stay with the, this simple example. Um, the knee hurts, or some other part of the body hurts. And we don't like that. No one likes it. It's normal not to like it. We want to relieve ourselves of that pain and, and, and get to comfort again. And so step number one is, uh, for example, to notice perhaps resistance, perhaps our attitude, even the word pain. We're already off, off and running in the wrong direction. Because pain is usually derogatory. We don't have uh, such good associations with that word. And so uh, step number one is, in a sense, can we 
come to the pure experience, uh, setting aside through seeing uh, all of the apprehension uh, that comes from uh, the labels that we have about pain, the uh, forms of resistance, avoidance, denial, uh, self-pity, and so forth that come up when we have pain. And just minutely, as you know, the way we do it is we perhaps bring attention to the pain, and one set of instructions, very useful, um, go to where the intensity is most focused in the body. Go right there and bring your awareness to that uh, focal point of where the pain is, is most intense. And if it moves, move with it. If it gets more intense, experience it. If it gets less intense, be right there with it. If it falls away altogether, fine. If it comes back, and as we know, if you do this, you may discover that often there's a secondary kind of tension. That is, one part of the body is uh, tense because it's coping or putting up with the pain. So that you may have a central part of the body that hurts, and another part, maybe the shoulders or wherever, that is really resisting it, and that only makes it worse. And so the instructions are to come right into the raw physical sensations. In the Buddha's language, the body in the body. Mindfulness, that's the first foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body in the body. And that, in English, strange way of putting things, means the body-body, not the body image. It's the, the, the pure sensations that are just throb-throb, ache-ache, and so forth. And we're encouraged uh, with time to be able to sustain our attention, to see all the subtleties of these, uh, the, these, uh, the, what we call pain, to be able to see it rise and pass away, to see that it's subject to the law of impermanence, uh, and to be able to see that it's empty, that it's not self. But that's the big one, one of the biggest ones. Because if you can uh, really if your samadhi is adequate and you're willing to try and re-educate yourself to move from some way of getting away from pain to just very gently and in a friendly way approaching it instead of resisting it, actually opening up to it. Instead of resisting it, open to it. That's a radical re-education because that's not what we've been taught to do. And it's not what we automatically seem to do. And yet uh, we're being given this guidance. If you're able to do that, if the samadhi is really strong, that breaks the momentum of the thinking mind, naturally. If you're so with the sensations of pain that uh, thoughts of, this is my pain, this is happening to me, are not there because you're so absorbed in the pain. But, as we all know, if you flinch just for one second, it's like opening a porthole and the Atlantic Ocean comes pouring in. If your attention wavers, all of a sudden, the mind comes in and starts making up stories about what's happening. And those stories uh, are what we sometimes call torment. It can say anything. Uh, some of it may be true. You have to listen carefully. Because sometimes there's intelligence tucked inside of fear and whatever the mind says. But in this case, so often it's um, inflamed. If we're not aware, what tends to happen is the pain becomes, um, it flares up. And it goes from throb, 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 ache, 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 to torment, 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 
to uh, finally the most uh, devastating thought of all, which is, this is my pain. This is happening to me. This is my body. This is my personal own pain. And then what follows from that is self-pity, of course, for me. And then uh, we, we're rolling it. We're, we've long forgotten about Vipassana meditation. That's ancient history. And uh, we're just thinking of packing our bags or when will the bell ring? Uh, you know, hating being here, the trip you were going to go to Burma, cancel it. <laughs> you know. But discernment, and this is a, a very important uh, notion, satipanya, mindfulness can investigate right in, go right on in and investigate. Uh, and if it does that, as it begins to be able to tell the difference between the physical sensations, which are unpleasant, even very unpleasant, and what the mind makes up about it, that's the second arrow, then you're able to extract that second arrow, or at least pull it out a little bit so it's not so painful. And with practice, you can take it out. And they, it, it's still not wonderful sometimes. I'm not saying that far out. It's just so great to be sitting here uh, with a knee that hurts, but it's not torment. And if it gets to a certain point, then uh, you know, perhaps you've learned all that you want to learn uh, <laughs> up until that point. And there are, we have other methods, other c- kind of approaches. For example, if it's too much, perhaps back off and go to the breath. Uh, perhaps do some metta and then come back to it. Uh, if you're doing anapanasati, full awareness with breathing, then you don't leave the breath. That is, uh, while you're with the physical pain, uh, you're grounded in the breathing as well. It's a unified field. It's not really, maybe not at the beginning, but when, when the method uh, ripens, you can feel the breathing happening in the pain and that conscious breathing in the pain. Not that you're sending it there, a perfectly good yoga technique. We're not sending anything anywhere. It's just that because you've been with the breath so much, it's so much more vivid and that you experience the breathing and the pain and some of that subsides. But the same thing will happen if you're attentive, if you're fully attentive, and the breath can help you do that. Uh, Other ways to approach this is to to practice with smaller pains that are quite manageable, uh, smaller uh, instances of discomfort, and then little by little, Uh, edge your way into where you're willing to uh, work with some of the strong pains that can come up in, let's say, an hour sitting or when when you've been doing what we've been doing, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, and so forth. Other approaches, uh, if the samadhi is uh, pretty stable, uh, usually doesn't work out so well unless it is. Uh, Sometimes it does for certain individuals for temperamental reasons or motivation. And that is, get a sense of the whole body. Uh, And you experience the pain as part of the whole body. So that now you're not going into where the intensity is most uh, intense, most of that focal point. But rather, you're experiencing the pain in the context of the full body sitting and breathing. And what can happen there is that uh, if you're able to do it, the mind is, the thinking is either shut down or it's minimal. And uh, 
uh, again, the pain is just what it is. It's not what it is plus what the mind adds to it. And more and more with discernment, which you sharpen your discernment this way. But you have to do it many, many times. Uh, by doing this, um, the kind of pain that we have doesn't flare up and become torment or tremendous agony and anguish that we take to be one thing. Uh, it isn't. Or finally, one other method that uh, Ajahn Lee in Thailand used to suggest, and uh, maybe this is a last resort, I don't know, I mean, other than getting up and moving. Uh, if one part of the body was uh, in pain, he would say, look, it's like this. If you have a mango with a worm in it, uh, but the rest of the body, the rest of the mango is delicious, just cut the worm out, but eat the rest of the mango. In other words, go to the part of the body, to some part of that doesn't hurt. It isn't, to me, the most fulfilling solution in its short run. Uh, I would say, and I know a fair number of you certainly know this from your own experience, finally, there's no uh, shortcut. That what's most, most valuable is learning how to face life as it is. And that if there's one lesson to come from our practice, it's that, that there is no escape from suffering. The Buddha says there's an end to suffering. He doesn't say there's, uh, but what we, we've been trying to escape. If the escapes work, none of us would be here. We don't have to be here. We could be boating, sailing, sky jumping, whatever it is, that but- <laughs> sky bunging, whatever. <laughs> All kinds of ways to take our mind off ourselves. Um, In fact, for many of us, a turning point can be when you realize that there's no escape, meaning all the energy and effort that we use up trying to escape, uh, the practice is now and forever about what is. Just how is it right now? What is? And the mind, unless it's re-educated, is primarily concerned with what was, or what might be, or what should be, or what could be, or what will be. And the practice is to constantly come back to what is, what is, what is. Uh, The escapes uh, don't work. If they did work, uh, fine. And the energy that's used in trying to escape, avoid, deny, uh, postpone, delay, cope, put up with. Picture if you gathered all that energy together, and instead of all those strategies that are ineffective, put them into attention. Think of the power that you have if that energy is not wasted. So it's very profound when you begin to see that these uh, tactics that we have don't work. And instead of wasting that energy, harness it, marshal it, and use it to face what's there. Uh, We may just not get to death tonight. You'd probably be relieved, right? Happy. Uh, I decided I could take five more minutes and the interviews will go a little longer, so uh, I'll squeeze a little bit of something, but it's the same thing. Um, A practical example, this really did happen to me. Um, I hope I'm not embellishing. I'm doing the best I can to to report it. When I was in Thailand with Ajahn Mahabua, uh, both Karado and I uh, practiced with him at different times. And he's from the old school, uh, the heroic yogi school. Um, And what happened was I arrived uh, to what is called the Thai forest tradition 
and this was a forest monastery, the first thing I saw was, wrong name. It's not a forest, it's a jungle. There's a difference. You go on picnics in a forest. <laughs> you bring the family, you spread the blanket out. You throw those little things, you know, and all that. You don't do that in the jungle. So in the Thai jungle tradition, uh, <laughs> yeah. wasn't bad enough that it was a jungle, uh, immediately I got tremendously sick. I couldn't hold the food. I became feverish. I had dysentery. Uh, I was throwing up. And on top of that, a tooth broke in half. Uh, there's no doctor or dentist. Uh, you can get to one, but it's a 45-minute drive in a pickup truck that if they can get someone in the village who's free to, to drive you there, they do. Um, and so, of course, I went to see Ajahn uh, Mahabua, and he was just terrific. He and this uh, Western monk who translated and who also, in his own right, is a, a very fine teacher. And essentially, what he was saying was what I just told you, is he gave me it, it, the instructions as to how to practice. Uh, he said, look, you've used all your Western medicine, we've used all our Thai medicine, and nothing seems to work. You're, you have dysentery. If we felt you were going to die, we'd rush you out of here. Uh, but it doesn't look like that, but I, I, I was miserable. And he must have been reading my mind. He said, look, you can uh, stay a few more days and then leave, and then you can go back home and go to parties and tell people about your week in Thailand, you know, uh, and make a lot of uh, conversation about your week at a Thai forest monastery, jungle monastery. He said, but I advise you to, to stick it out. You know what to do. I mean, he knew we'd been uh, practicing for a while. And he just went over the instructions. And the main instruction was uh, to focus in on the sensations. These were, this is dukkha vedana, in other words, painful sensations. To not get lost in them. To be able to tell the difference between the hysteria of the mind, the stories that the mind makes up about where this is going, what will happen to me, why did I ever come here in the first place, everything. And to come back time and time again to the breath, to the body, uh, to come investigate on in with discernment. And I did my best to do it. And uh, in between running out into the jungle to throw up and coming back to the hut to try and sit, really was more lying down. Um, it's something that can be learned. It's our practice only with conditions rather demanding and challenging. It's just different scenery, but it's the same practice. It's the same teaching, no different. It's more difficult to do, but it it's can be done. And so what I was practicing was staying very close to just the raw sensations and being able to tell the difference between those sensations and what the mind was concocting and fabricating and fashioning out of them into stories. And I did get to a point where the body was really just in awful shape and the mind was happy, really happy and peaceful. And it passed. It went away. Uh, and uh, it was quite a learning. And they, uh, I don't think I could have done it on my own, personally, uh, because I conferred with him two or three times and his encouragement and confidence, and he laughed a lot, you know. Uh, I didn't always appreciate that, but mostly uh, he seemed to, mainly it was his confidence. He was just sure that 
uh, his teacher, Ajahn Mun, who started this whole lineage, some of which you're being victimized by, um, he would say to his meditators, don't even moan if you're sick. You know, that's for ordinary people. Meditators don't moan. If moaning did any good, we wouldn't need any, wouldn't use medicine. We wouldn't need it. It's a complete waste of time. That's for sissies. <laughs> no moaning. Okay. Another story. Someone in our sangha in Cambridge who uh, uh, developed uh, Alzheimer's disease a few years ago. Uh, someone with a, a really brilliant mind, an ex-academician, um, a meditator for many years, or he wouldn't have been able to do what I'm about to say. And of course it was terrifying. The early stages, uh, it seemed like Alzheimer's, and then he got it checked and tested, and indeed, indeed it was. You know, he was doing some meditation teaching, and one day in front of a class, uh, he looked up and he didn't know who anyone was or why he was there. And it was just so humiliating. And uh, uh, he went through a lot of pain. He, he had a very wonderful wife who uh, s stuck with him and, and some friends, so, you know, a number of us. Uh, and he had the practice, most of all. To get to the, to the point, he's now in a place where it has deteriorated a bit. I mean, it's there clearly. I, a few months ago, was over at his having dinner with him and, and his wife. And we were there. And... Uh, a few times in the middle of the conversation, you could see he was gone. He didn't know where he was or who anyone was. And, but he learned uh, to not freak out. He learned that this is what happens when you have what he has. And he would just pause, and uh, this I know because he's told me. We've talked about it many times. And his wife, who's also a meditator, has helped. Uh, the way he got to be able to, uh, to do what he, what he does is that he, he was, his wife would remember, to tell, his wife would remind him, uh, look at how frightened you are right now. Look at how uh, upset you are. Look at how sad you are that uh, your mind isn't working. And so he would do it, and he learned that he has no control over those moments when he has mind lapses. But what he can do is observe the fear that comes up, and it, it's gotten less and less. So that when those moments happened, there were a few times, he didn't seem upset was like he knew what to do. Okay, it's one of those times. And we knew what to do. We helped out. But uh, he did most of the work. Now, what I'm suggesting is that typically when the body malfunctions, so does the mind. If you, if the, if you can't see, if you're blind, then you become a blind person. You become a blind man. You take on an identity. And in addition to the body, uh, the eyes may be blind, but do you have to be blind? According to this teaching, no. In other words, seeing goes on. It's a different kind of seeing. But there's a seeing that can break through, cut through the despair, the disappointment, the comparisons with when you could see or when you could move if your body uh, has had an, an accident or through uh, ailment or illness or aging or if your hearing goes or whatever it is. I wish I had a little bit more time, but... The principle is what's important. Each one of us has to work in our own way with our own unique set of conditions. The point of what the Buddha is giving us is that it's workable, that the body must age, that it must get sick and it must die. That's, of course. Uh, how we take that set of events is up to us.
In other words, the rest is up to us. We can turn it into a nightmare, or we can turn it around and use it for practice. I forgot to mention, what Mahabua uh, advice included, and this is kind of standard in, the, in, the, in that tradition, he says, when you get sick, and I was pretty much bedridden, I was just lying there when I'd get back to my uh, meditation hut, he said, instead of uh, defining yourself as you know, this big sick person, uh, be happy. Understand, wow, I'm confined to my bed for the next five or six days. Of course, I was at a monastery. It's a little different, but in a way, not so different. And he said, uh, you're fortunate because you don't have all the distractions that people who don't have malfunctions have. You know, running here, running there, looking for this, looking for that, getting praise, getting, uh, making more money, getting, you know, all the things we fill up our day with. He said, you're temporarily relieved of all of that. Just lie in the bed, lucky you. You know, and don't and take advantage of it. Turn it completely around, and it's like you have a retreat in your bed. It's an attitudinal change that's radical, but it really, if you don't, if you can't change your attitude, a lot of what I'm saying won't won't help. You've got to understand, this is the Dharma attitude. A bad situation is a, is a good situation, but only if we can transform it, turn it around. It's not some cute Zen saying. You know, it's something that can be done, but it takes a lot of hard work and determination. And also, perhaps you don't want to suffer so much. And you understand that there have been other people ahead of us who've done this. It's new to us. Maybe it's new in our culture. But it has been done. And it's not uniquely Buddhist. But what I know is these methods and these techniques. But I think all spiritual life offers help in these situations, so that uh, a, a bodily malfunction doesn't turn out to also be a mind malfunction. And then it's as if, if you make, I am mal- I'm Mr. and Miss or Miss Malfunction, then you are. If you make that, that's what you have. Now, it asks for courage, it asks for determination, and it asks for us to use our practice. Now, I don't think you can do what I'm saying unless you have sufficient samadhi, unless you have been exposed to these teachings enough times, unless you've been given these pep talks enough times, etc., etc., and so forth, the power of the sangha, even if the sangha is just in your mind, knowing that there are other people who, who, who live this way, even if they're not in the room with you at a certain time. Um, okay, we're... I have to end in a kind of uh, cryptic way, but um, you see, in in Dharma teaching, the death of the physical body really isn't uh, nearly as important as what is called uh, the great death. The whole practice is about the death of self-centeredness, self-cherishing, an egocentric way of life where everything is uh, done on behalf of this entity that, at least according to this teaching, and it's for you to, to test to see if it's true, is a conceptual fabrication. It's not really there in the way in which we think it's there. Like my self-image. Okay, if we go back to that. Um, practice is letting go of all self-images. So-called high self-esteem, low self-esteem, none of it works. Sure, it's better to have high self-esteem than low or good self-image than a poor one, but they're all so vulnerable and fragile and they fall apart at the drop of a, a look. Uh, and what the practice is saying, uh, 
there's no real happiness there. Can you let the mind empty itself of all images? All of them. And then, of course, there's a, a pulling back by the mind. What? There's a fear. And images give us a certain satisfaction. You work hard to finally carve out this image of, let's say, an, a person who's a certain age, but a little bit more agile and looks 10 years younger, and then this person destroys it by giving you a chair. Uh, and there's a certain security that comes from that age, that uh, image. But you have to let it go, and the, what's waiting for us is uh, certainly, uh, which is true, what's waiting for us is not a fabrication, it's not a cultural creation that is subject to change. So uh, the practice is about dying to that, and everything we're doing is about that. Now, the reason I went into such detail on, let's say, just that painful knee and how to work with it, is that while you're working on this retreat, forget about death awareness and all these things that you've been hearing every other evening, even if you never heard it. Whether you know it or not, you're preparing for your old age, sickness, and death. Because it's not different than what's happening here. Right now, you could, you're present, and your reality is a certain way for you in this moment. So is mine. And when the time comes to die, it's going to be exactly the same. It will be a real moment of life. There'll be a certain kind of breathing. The body will be a certain way. There'll be a certain background with some people or no people or a room or temperature. It's going to be real. Until that time, a lot of what we're afraid of is our imagination, our idea of what death will be. So the time is just eating us up, psychological time. The practice of being in the moment, and that's become such a, at times, cliche. If you can really be in the moment, then... Uh, the whole point is to live fully while you're alive, and when the time comes to die, to just die. What else are we going to do? <laughs> Could we have a few moments of silence? So what you didn't realize is that you got a bargain in this retreat. Uh, you thought you were just getting a retreat, but you were getting two for the price of one. Pl a retreat plus learning how to get old, sick, and die. No extra charge from the management. Okay. Certainly, just to take up the simple breath in and out and maintain as much continuity of attention as possible brings with it an obvious benefit. The mind becomes more calm, peaceful, stable. And that's useful, that <clears throat> the mind becomes more fit to do whatever it sets out to do. And so that samadhi, that level of development of samadhi that comes about from the breath is then brought over into what we've called free attention or choiceless awareness. 
where it's now a moving field of objects. Everything that's there in consciousness. And the challenge is to take the the level of attention developed on the breath as we practice with it in a singular way to bring it into this moving field so that it remains strong and steady, but also pliable, clear, in terms of all the coming and going. And as you know, one way to do it is without any agenda whatsoever, just learning the art of allowing, which we began to learn with the breathing, but now can we let the events of the mind and body just unfold, run their course. And can we be there knowing it as it happens? More than a few times, I know I've used the phrase, come to rest in the breathing. Anchor yourself in the breathing, grounded in the breathing, you become aware of and so forth. And the emphasis is on objects, that which you're aware of, which perhaps you can liken to clouds, all of which come and go. And we're learning how to move in close, to become more familiar with, to see into the changing and empty nature of each cloud. As our practice ripens and matures, whether someone says it or not. At some point, the emphasis shifts. Of course, it always includes these objects. But the breath is not the final resting place. It's on the way. It's a a way station, a very simple, natural, and beautiful one, always available. It's awareness itself. So in somewhat more technical language to begin with, there's a dualistic view of things where there's an observer and there's something being observed. With practice, that self-conscious meditator, that self-conscious one who's trying to be mindful and to do it correctly, properly, with continuity, which is inescapably there and and natural to be there. It's natural for it to be there. That starts to thin out, to fall away. And what's left is clear seeing. And that's the direction the practice goes in. Now, what we're doing is not true choiceless awareness. We're, we have to start somewhere, and we're approximating it. Because there's still doing subtle, where we're directing our attention to this moving field. And when there's doing, isn't there also that sense of self that's doing the doing? Even directing the mind to not have an agenda, to allow. And that's where we begin. But as this practice ripens and matures, No object stands out over and above any other, including silence. And the discipline becomes 
an exquisitely subtle one. It's sort of the, the method of no method, where the whole art is just to drop any pretense whatsoever, drop any calculation, scheming, means end, goal-directed behavior. And it doesn't fall away by will. It withers away, even if it's just for a little while. So that means, in a different language, the ego is getting decentralized. As you learn how to really surrender and allow things to happen, then the ego's job is, is done. There's no room for it. Of course, it's going to try to squeeze in there as much as it can. But there can come a time for all of us through practice, where there's just sitting, the awareness is effortless, there's truly no agenda. There's a, an open, undivided, intimate connection with life as it is in this moment. The Thai masters often talk about, be the knowing. Ajahn Chah would say this over and over again, be the knowing, being be the one who knows, be that which knows. And so that's the direction the practice moves towards sooner or later. Sooner or later the clouds become less prominent, lose their power, and the clear blue sky that's been there all along starts to emerge as a very important element in our daily life, in our sitting practice, and everything else as well. Again, not as a practice or a cultivation, it's there. It's just waiting for us. I'd like to uh, read to you from the teachings of Ajahn Mahabua, who both Karada and I have practiced with, uh, on the issue of death. And I hope these few words that I just mentioned will help you understand him a little bit. Even, even at the moment when you're about to die, the heart will be up on events in the immediate present. It won't be shaken by pain and death, because it is sure that the mind is the mind, a stronghold of awareness. Each khanda is simply a condition. That's, those are the five khandas he's referring to elements which make up a person. Each khanda is simply a condition. The mind thus doesn't fear death because it is sure of itself that it won't get destroyed anywhere. Discernment will spread its power far and wide. The heart will be more and more radiant, more and more courageous, because discernment, discernment is what cleanses it. Even if death comes at that moment, there is no problem. If you use mindfulness and discernment to investigate pain without retreating to the point where you understand it, then even when you really are about to die, you will know that the pain will disappear first. The mind won't disappear. It will revert into itself, knowing exclusively within itself 
and then pass on at that moment. The mind will withdraw itself from all that, meaning the, when seeing the khanda is no longer being able to endure and starting to fall apart, and revert to its mindness. At another time, he says, and this is to a a woman who was very close to death of cancer. So was the first quote. And she ended her life in meditation for many, many days at the monastery. And he would come over every evening and give her a personal talk until she did die. There's no need to fear death. There is no death to the mind. Don't create snares to catch yourself and hurt yourself. There's no death to the mind. There is nothing but awareness pure and simple. Death doesn't exist in the mind, which is something 100% unalterable and sure. Death is an assumption which has been conjured up for the mind through the power of the mind's own delusion. The mind has conjured it up to deceive itself. So once we have investigated in line with the truth, the mind is not something which dies. What reason will we have to fear death? We human beings, when we have stopped breathing, are called dead people. At that moment, the knower separates from the elements so that nothing is left but physical elements with no feelings. That's a dead person. But actually, the knower doesn't die. This unshakable quality of mind is, of course, the direction the practice is going in, and whether you know it or not, that's what you're doing. You're preparing yourself for it. Every mindful step, every mindful morsel of food you eat, every time you're with a breath, every moment of wakefulness is literally changing the mind, making it over, strengthening it, giving it a stability that would be unthinkable without training. There may be some who are skeptical about this statement. I'm not talking about past lives and future lives. If you have no interest in that or don't believe in it, that's fine. Even if you're, this doesn't hold up to your scientific, rational, intellectual assessment, just what you heard, perhaps think of it this way so that you can see that it applies to ordinary people like ourselves. Woody Allen, in one of his movies, says, it's not that I'm afraid of dying. It's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. Vipassana Yogi has it the other way around. We openly acknowledge we're terrified of dying, and we do want to be there when it happens. But in what way? I wouldn't want to be there if my mind was all over the place, frightened, bewildered, terrified, and have no ability to do anything about it. A life of practice, in whatever age you are, is the right time to start. We have no other choice. Helps us bring the mind into such a state that perhaps we can die with uh, dignity, with uh, some clarity, and whether what awaits us is unknown, finally, to all of us. 
Yet, it seems to me that the time that we're spending practicing, in addition to the immediate benefits it has right here, right now, is also the best thing we could do for ourselves. In the long run, uh, by extension, this kind of unshakable awareness, some of the ways in which it grows, not only on retreats, but through the natural difficulties of having a body and being alive. Perhaps it's the death of someone you love. Perhaps it's a catastrophic illness or some, uh, something that dramatically changes your body, that disables you. Perhaps it's the loss of a job or fame. Uh, perhaps it's the loss of money, some hardship in life that uh, is extraordinarily painful. The challenge is for the mind to either be sucked down into that, to be overwhelmed by it, or to grow through it. It's not denial at all. You're feeling it. No one escapes, whether you're a meditator or not. But applying the practice to these situations, these very powerful situations that all of us meet with from time to time, only serves to strengthen us and to take us deeper. And that's all in the way, on the way to having a mind that's unshakable. I'll leave you with something another one of my teachers, a Tibetan Lama named Tara Tolko, told me. I was questioning him a lot about my own practice, and I wanted feedback on how I was doing, and I think I was a little bit uh, fishing for compliments. And after a few rounds of this, he, uh, he got to what I think we would now call the bottom line. And he said, look, um, do you have full confidence in your total indestructibility yet? Of course not. Time to go back to the cushion. Now, even if you don't know what these words mean, whether you know it or not, that's what we're, we're doing. We're re-educating the mind, depending on how much time and sincere effort you put into it, how much you care, that's what you get out of it. It's, it's no different than anything else. And so as we watch the mind, and I know many of you love that poem, and we'll have some copies run off for anyone who wants one. Enjoying the coming and going, more and more strengthening this ability of awareness to be unshakable. Finally, finding out that that's who we are. We are awareness itself. <laughs>